The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Minister for Education, Norma Foley, with us at half four, encouraging the parents of children in primary school not to get them smartphones and for parents to band together at schools to do so. But one listener says, what another waste of resources? Mobile technology is and always will be a staple in daily life. As opposed to restricting their use, you should be encouraging safe use through educating children how to use them safely. Monitors can be installed to govern what your child can or cannot do. A different approach needs to be used embrace the tech that the kids will be using. Another one says, fantastic to hear the Minister address the phone issue but in secondary schools it's a real problem as they are impossible to police in classrooms. Teachers are finding themselves to be live streamed according to that listener. Uh, another one here says that uh, well, there's quite a lot of people actually wanted to take this as a distraction from the real issue of uh, the uh, teacher shortage. But another one here says, I'm listening to the smartphone debate. Recently at my grandson's 10th birthday party, himself and one other child out of 10 were the only ones with no phones. With children not being in contact with each other after school anymore, the other kids were telling me how great it was to be able to talk to each other after school. I get the feeling uh, that uh, every school with a smartphone, and just can't understand the end of that one, but anyway uh, there are a lot of people as well and one says, the only reason my 6th class child has a phone is to check in with us socialise with friends and contact us if teenagers or adults cause dangerous situations around them. I think government should concentrate on addressing issues of the day such as antisocial behaviour from young people around electric scooters, electric bikes and scrambler motorcycles in parks and public areas with open uh, dealing going on. Okay. Let's go to the United States of America. We'll go to Cal Thomas in a moment, but Mary McKeown, I want to talk to you first about the latest in this trial involving Molly Martins and her father, Thomas, who admit to the killing of Jason Corbett, but who are trying to get a reduced sentence. And even since we spoke last Friday about this, they have made more claims about Jason Corbett, which seem to have outraged his family. That's right. Uh, As you just mentioned, uh, Molly Martins and her father have already pleaded guilty essentially to voluntary manslaughter. The only issue for the court to decide now is the sentence they'll receive. They've already served three and a half years each in prison before their previous conviction was overturned. That conviction was overturned because children statements made by the two children at the time who were aged eight and ten were deemed inadmissible in that trial. An appeal court said that was wrongly decided. They then were given the chance for another trial and they pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter. Now, as we said, just the issue here now is will they be able to walk away from this hearing without going back to prison? Will the judge decide that three and a half years is enough and what they're putting, what they're really, and the strategy has changed slightly in that they are now really focusing on this claim for which there seems to be no evidence and certainly has outraged the family of Mags Fitzpatrick Corbett uh, that she was murdered by Jason Corbett. The reason that they are claiming this is that they believe that Molly Martin says that she was strangled, that Jason Corbett tried to choke her to death on the night of her death. She told friends uh, on the night of his death, I beg your pardon, she told friends it was him or me and she is trying to claim now that the, her belief that he had killed his first wife made her even more fearful for her life. Now I've gone through the statements of several of these medical pathologists and 
they seem to be basing everything on a two-page summary from the Irish coroner and they're very, very critical of that. They have said, one of them said categorically that, that she couldn't have died of an asthma attack. The others are more vague, but they all stepped back when they were asked, did they believe she was murdered? They said, well, they couldn't really say. Well, of course they couldn't say. that. You know, the, the, this, these are paid witnesses and it has distressed the family um, of um, Mags Fitzpatrick um, Corbett really deeply and they put out a very, very strong statement saying what everything that Jason Corbett had done that night to try to save her life, that she was an asthmatic, that on the day of her death her sister was in their home, she was staying there at the time, they did everything they could to get her to hospital and they're really pushing back very very hard against these claims that are being made in a court in North Carolina uh, Indeed, Marion, so much so that the two children apparently are going to give That's their right. statement as well in court. Yeah. Now, to me, the most heartbreaking thing about this is these these two children who lost their mother... Um, through that asthma attack when when they were babies. They then, when they were aged eight and ten, their father was then murdered um, and and they, you know, they now have to go. They were apparently very attached to Molly Corbett at one point. They called her mom from an early age and they've been so outraged now by what was said about their father uh, that they have said that they want to testify and they want to give vi- victim impact statements in person, not have them read out by the prosecution as was originally intended. So it, it's it's a very very tragic situation and I said that I think that the thing that people need to realise is that this is a legal strategy by the defence. It doesn't actually establish anything. What they are trying to do is to minimise the sentences and to get Molly Martins and her father basically to be able to walk away from this courtroom without going back to prison. Okay, let's move to our normal American coverage Marion, stay with us. Cal Thomas is with us as well. And let's start first with this opinion poll, which suggests that Donald Trump is heading back to the White House in a presidential election this time next year. Because looking at some of the key swing states, Nevada, Georgia, Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, all of which were won by Biden in 2020, He's now behind in five of those key swing states. He'll only retain Wisconsin, according to the opinion polls, and he's only got a 2% lead in that particular state. Before I ask Cal to comment on that, let's hear the former Barack Obama advisor, David Axelrod, reacting to that particular poll. I want to make clear, I think Biden's been a great president. I think he's done things that have generational, will have generational impact and importance. I think he's, you know, been honorable in the office. Uh, you know, I, I have, I have nothing but good things to say, but, uh, as I've said for like a couple of years now, the issue is not, uh, for him is, is not, uh, political it's actuarial and you can see that in this poll and there's just a lot of concern about the age issue and uh and that is something that i think he needs to uh, ponder just do a check and say is this the right thing uh to do time is fleeting here and this is probably the last moment uh for him to do that check and it's 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 probably good if he does. So, Carl Thomas, even those who think that Biden has been a very good president and continues to be are worried that he's not re-electable. Well, you have to always qualify these polls uh, about a year before the election. 
uh, anything can happen. You've still got the Trump criminal trials coming up and what the public reaction will be to evidence presented in those trials. But this is uh, clearly a problem for Democrats, especially when these polls were taken by the liberal New York Times and Siena College. But here's another poll from ABC News Ipsos found that more than 75 percent of Americans believe the country is headed in the wrong direction. Now, that's really difficult to overcome. And even worse in the ABC News Ipsos poll, even worse for Democrats, is the response to the question about which party they believe can better handle the economy. Nearly always the top issue in any presidential campaign. 35% said Republicans would do a better job with only 25% saying the same. So Democrats have got a real problem in overcoming uh, these perceptions. But yet, Mary McKeown, I've come back to something we've discussed many times previously, it would appear that the Democrats don't have anybody strong enough to run in place of Biden, or do they? No, I don't agree with that. I think that the you look Biden. I, so many of the Democrats um, who who have worked in the Obama administration have come out and said, "Look, Obama was in the same place in twenty you know eleven." Blah blah blah. The problem is for Biden that Obama was turning fifty. Oh, Biden is going to or Biden is going to be eighty one, and that is the big difference. And when, as you put, what Cal said, two things that Biden is only going to get older, like all of us, uh, by twenty twenty. But also there are he has polling really badly on the economy because the message that the economy is doing really well by by technical metrics is not getting through to people who are really feeling that that, that they have no disposable income, you know, around America. And there are a lot of them. So I think that there, there are, you know, I think Gavin Newsom could be a strong candidate. I think he might be a little bit too rich, white and elite for the Democrats. I think Gretchen Whitmer would be an excellent candidate, I, you know, and. But the problem is, I don't know why Axelrod came out and said this at this point, because it is actually too late. Even if Biden were to tomorrow say, look, I'm pulling out, it takes a lot of time to turn those ships around and and everything else. And Biden is not going to listen to Axelrod on the TV and say, oh, you know what, that's a good idea, because it's not like it hasn't already been raised with him and he's determined to run. And then what about, sorry, Carl. There's precedent for this. Uh, The 1968 election, when Lyndon Johnson decided not to run for re-election, to focus on uh, the Vietnam War and and other things, Uh, the polling was really bad. The anti-war movement was stepping up. So I think, uh, you know, Biden would do a great thing for the Democrats if he did step aside and say, I want to focus on the rest of my time in office on the things that uh, most Americans care about, the the, the, uh, taxes and spending, the open border, uh, and and some of these other things. Will he do it? I don't know. It took him three runs to become president. Giving it up is like uh, getting off of drugs. It's a uh, it's an addictive uh, power center. So we'll see. But again, we've got almost a year now, and we've got these other elections coming up uh, tomorrow, which uh, are called off-year elections. But in America, there really aren't any off-year elections anymore. Everyone counts for something. Okay, um, but I want to ask you, Carl, about this other poll that's been done, which suggests that if you had a three-way contest in the presidential election with Robert Kennedy Jr. in there, that he would get 22%. Biden would take 39%. Trump would have 36%. Of course, the problem with that is, what way would that then impact on all the electoral college votes? Yes, uh, I'm shocked that 
Kennedy Jr. has 22 percent. I think it's more of a reaction uh, to the perception of President Biden and uh, and the economy and some other issues than uh, favorable to Bobby Kennedy Jr. I mean, it, it, uh, he's got some kind of voice problem. I don't know exactly what it is, but he's incredibly inarticulate. He was an anti-vaxxer, uh, and he's taken some other positions that uh, opinion polls say most Americans uh, are not uh, comfortable with. So, again, I think it's uh, mostly a reaction to Biden and not so much a pro-Kennedy Jr. Uh, movement. What does this say about American politics, Marion, that <laughs> the third person coming in is this crank Robert Kennedy Jr.? Well, you know, I think that what it says is that I've been to about a dozen uh, Kennedy Jr. events at this stage. Uh, I think it's a bit like Ron DeSantis. The more people see of Robert Kennedy Jr., the more his support will drop because he is not a plausible candidate for president. And I think that, that, you know, people, uh, it's going to be the 60th anniversary of JFK's assassination the week after next. I think people are looking, they want something else. What this poll is telling us is that they don't want Trump and they don't want Biden, they want something else. And they may have this idea about, oh, maybe a Kennedy, but when they see the Kennedy they bring offered, I think that they're going to run. But he still could do damage as an independent candidate. Now, again, people are saying he'll take votes from Trump just based on the events that I've attended, the Trump events um, and, you know, general events like the Iowa State Fair. There wasn't a single Trump supporter there who said they were going to switch to Kennedy. But I've spoken to a lot of Democrats who say that they will. Uh, so even though people are saying that this will damage Trump as much as Biden. I'm not seeing it based on the ground on people I'm talking to. They all seem to be Democrats who are saying they may vote for Kennedy because they're disillusioned with Biden. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about Trump and let's hear a little bit about what Letitia James, the prosecutor, said yesterday after Donald Trump's evidence in the civil case involving his financial dealings in the state of New York. Today we heard from uh, Donald Trump in our case against him, other defendants, and the Trump Organization. He rambled, he hurled insults, um, but we expected that. At the end of the day, um, the documentary evidence demonstrated that, in fact, he falsely inflated his assets to basically enrich himself and his family. He continued to persistently engage in fraud. Um, The numbers don't lie, and Mr. Trump obviously can engage in all of these distractions, and that is exactly what he did, what he committed on the stand today, engaging engaging in distractions and engaging in name-calling. But I will not be bullied. I will not be harassed. This case will go on. We look forward to hearing the testimony of Ivanka Trump on Wednesday, and then we plan on closing our case. Um, Justice will prevail. Okay, Mary McKillen, what did you make of Donald Trump's performance yesterday? Well, I don't know why there weren't men with white coats in that courtroom because it was beyond bonkers. It was, look, Trump knows he's lost this case. The judge has already decided as a matter of fact that there was fraud. So really what's to be decided here is how big a fine Trump and his sons will pay and whether they will have their licenses to do business in New York revoked. You would think given that and given that this judge is going to decide these things that Trump might have put on an appearance of some kind of humility or sanity in the courtroom, but instead 
said he attacked the judge directly. He attacked Letitia James. He went off on these crazy tangents talking about how his property in Scotland and Aberdeen was so valuable because it's an oil-rich, apparently, city. And that apparently brings up the value of his property by $245 million. Uh, like, just absolute nonsense. And his lawyers were taking his cue, Alina Haba and Chris Kyes, and they were jumping up and down as well and attacking the judge. And, you know, it, 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 it's absolutely chaotic to see what's happening in, in these courtrooms. Uh, so I don't think that Trump did himself any favours, but I think what he's wanting to do is, as the judge said, he said to him, this is not a political rally, but I think Trump sees it as that and he knows that he's already lost this. He probably knows he's going to get a big fine and he's planning on fundraising and campaigning off the back of it. And I think that's the only explanation for the histrionics. Well, indeed, the, Cal, the Cal, the fin- approach. Really. Yeah, but could it be that this was exactly the type of approach that he needed to take to appeal to his base who believe him in every lie he tells? Absolutely, absolutely, Matt. And Marianne is correct on many of these things. But let's remember that Letitia James, the attorney general, ran on a platform of, quote, getting Trump. And she said in her remarks uh, also that uh, Trump and the people around him are too pale, meaning too white, and too male, meaning well, too male. But, uh, yeah, I think that Trump is playing to his base. Uh, he's uh, running as a martyr, uh, fundraising, yes, to be sure. And he's going to appeal this. I mean, one judge has already decided, as Marion said, uh, his guilt on this. And now he's trying to save his license in New York uh, to run his businesses. But uh, I, I think that uh, uh, it, there will be an appeal. And, and who knows what's going to happen? He's going to string all these things out. He's hoping against hope to get to the election, to get reelected, to get sworn in and to pardon himself on everything except the Georgia case, which is a state case, and you can't pardon yourself from that. So a lot's going to happen between now and next November. Thank you very much, Carl Thomas and Mary McKeown. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today FM.